Lesson one, basic hip. Hey everybody, it's Jason Crane from the Jazz Session. I hope you're having a great summer. Today is July 15th, 2019. I wanted to say hello and to bring you the first of the summer bonus episodes that are for everyone. Uh, The members will be getting more bonus episodes in the members-only feed. So if you'd like to hear those shows, as well as all the past members-only shows, you can subscribe for just five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Earlier this year, I think it was in May, but I didn't really look. Uh, I was invited onto the Sound Logic podcast, a podcast where uh, two guys I know go through Rolling Stone's top 500 albums and talk about each one and whether it should be on the list at all and should it be there and so on and so forth. They talk about the history of the records. So they had Kind of Blue come up on this list, and they decided that they wanted to talk to someone who uh, is steeped in the jazz world, and they couldn't find anybody, so they asked me. So here in its entirety is that episode of the Sound Logic podcast, and I invite you to look in the show notes for this show so you can go subscribe to uh, Ben and Mike's podcast and enjoy their show. Thanks so much. Have an awesome summer, and I will talk to you on the next Free for Everyone episode or on the next Members Only episode if you decide you'd like to not just listen, but also help me keep making these shows. Thanks. I'm Ben, and you're listening to the Sound Logic Podcast. This is Mike. Each episode, we discuss one of music's greatest albums from Rolling Stone Magazine's Top 500 list. Brought to you by two guys with no credentials. Welcome back to the Sound Logic Podcast. The recording of this episode ended up being a little bit different. This episode is flowing like a jazz song. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's just kind of going where it needs to go. And I think it's great. Today we're discussing album number 12, which is Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. We're really excited to have our friend Jason Crane with us today. Jason is uh, a friend of mine for the last couple of years. We met in the radio uh, studio at 98.7 The Freak here in State College. Jason used to host an incredible morning show there, and um, we met sort of promoting a a local community event. Uh, But Jason's just an all-around great guy, and, and when we figured out that we both were sort of spiritual explorers, people of faith who also cared about peace and social justice issues. Um, We ended up connecting and and collaborating. Uh, Jason actually um, started or launched a uh, a weekly vigil in the wake of Trump's election and uh, a vigil that I'm I'm happy to say has had at least one person, I think, pretty much every Monday at 4 p.m. since uh, Trump's election. Uh, standing for justice at the uh, Allen Street Gates here in State College. Uh, it's great to have you, Jason. Um, what do you, how do you describe yourself these days? What are the words that you use when people say, hi, uh, who are you? Thanks so much. First of all, uh, thank you, Ben and Mike, for having me here. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I guess I mostly tell people I'm a podcaster or that I interview musicians for a living. It's a dangerous way to introduce myself because inevitably they ask me what kind of musicians or who I interview, and then I have to say jazz, and then I get to watch the light in their eyes go out, and I, ne- I never get a follow-up question. Um, but that is what I do. I uh, For much of the last 20 or so years, I have bounced back and forth between working in radio or being a professional organizer, uh, mostly in the labor movement. And uh, over a lot of that time, I was also a professional musician, sometimes a jazz musician, but mostly uh, kind of with singer-songwriters, you know, playing saxophone with other people's bands, other people's music. Uh, and... 
the the jazz connection for me runs deep uh started with my grandfather when i was a little kid and um then kind of continued into you know the path a lot of people take with band and school uh, i eventually became a professional musician and then also got into radio at the same time uh luckily those early tapes are all lost because i sounded like <laughs> one of the chipmunks and uh then i realized that the thing i really loved to do was to talk to people and get their stories and so over the years i've hosted a number of different interview shows uh some with a particular focus on a kind of thing and some that were just general like the one that i met ben doing um, nowadays i primarily host a show called the jazz session it's at the jazzsession.com it's a long form interview show episodes tend to be about an hour uh and i talk to improvising musicians um some who would call themselves jazz musicians and some who wouldn't uh but all improvising musicians and whether or not you think you kind of like jazz or whatever i think the cool thing about the jazz session is that we can all find some inspiration in the lives of people who are doing risky things like deciding to dedicate their lives to being creative and that's really what the show uh, focuses on it's free to listen to but it's member supported folks can find it at the jazz session.com uh and uh, you know while i wouldn't consider myself a jazz expert by any means um i have been pretty steeped in this world for most of the last you know i'm 45 now and i probably first started listening to music with my grandfather when i was four or five and then got you know even more seriously into it when i was 18 or 19 so um, I have been listening for a long time, and I've talked to a lot of the people who are kind of around this music that we're going to talk about today. So for whatever that's worth, that's kind of what what I come into it with. I mean, that's what moved your resume to the top of the pile, and um, and that's the kind of standard that we hold here. So if you want to be a guest on this show, you really have to show that you are able to step up to the, the kind of quality and caliber that Jason brings to a, a fine podcast like the Sound Logic podcast. But yeah, I appreciate yeah. you guys for considering me. I mean, when I sent my CV, I wasn't sure if it would even, you know, get read, but I really do appreciate it. Either that or, or 20 bucks and a case of beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're really appreciative of you taking the time out of your day to do this, and uh, I'm sure we're going to have lots of good stuff to say. There's a Miles Davis quotation that I heard a number of years ago, which I love, and he said to his his bandmates after a gig or something um i don't pay you to play what you know i pay you to play what you don't know and i've always really really loved that yeah it's a really beautiful sentiment and i i think lots of music contains risk um but i do think risk is one of the hallmarks of improvised music because uh and just to define our terms in other words there are places in most uh jazz compositions where people make stuff up on the spot where they maybe they're playing over a framework like you know we you play through the song one time with the melody that everybody knows and then when you go through it another time you make up your own melody on top that's what i mean by improvising that is a, a very basic definition and there are millions of different ways and there's music that goes all the way up to let's all just start playing and nothing is decided on ahead of time and you know that's the stuff people hear that and they think like you know what is this you know squeak honk stuff but Oh, Ben but would lose his mind. <laughs> but here, the, here's the deal, though. The, uh, people have been listening to that kind of music. If you call that the Grateful Dead, then people will listen to an hour of two dudes f spinning around in the air playing their drum sets right. while J Jerry and Phil play in the, the same chord for an hour and then go into a song you've heard after it 
it's because of the way this music gets packaged, right? Like people right. will listen to improvised music and they have been for years. If you've ever, I always come back, the Allman Brothers are like kind of a good touchstone for classic rock fans. Because if you listen to the Allman Brothers, you've heard a 20 minute guitar solo before and all of that is improvised. It's exactly the same. And the Allman Brothers, you know, famously, uh, you know, were big fans of Miles Davis and in fact, big fans of Kind of Blue. That if you listen to that kind of music and it's not told, and someone doesn't tell you ahead of time, you're going to hate this then it's totally fine. You know, it's just that in jazz, you kind of go into it expecting there's no possible way I can understand this. And really that's, you know, that's not true. Hmm. Uh, I I just think that's it's really important to get to that. And that's the same thing with Kind of Blue. Like you can listen to all of this, but if it were up to me, what I would ask everybody to do is pause this podcast right now, go listen to the record first and like form some kind of opinion about it. Like just listen to it, see if you dig it at all. You know, before we tell you a lot about it, because yeah, it's yeah. the music can just be approached as music, like anything else. Well, I think that's uh, that's been in my head this week as I've been trying to immerse myself in this album. I really like it, but I can't exactly put my finger on what it is I like about it or what elevates this to, you know, some would say the greatest jazz album of all time. So I don't think we need to answer that question right now. But I'm. I'm excited to hear the two of you talk back and forth because, uh, you know, I, I am appreciating what I'm listening to. I just don't think I have the, the, the knowledge or the background perhaps to understand what makes this like sort of what puts it on a pedestal um, comparatively to, to some of the other things that come out of the genre. But, um, but we'll get there. Uh, do you, do you want to give us some background about the album, Mike? Do you have those notes in front of you? Yeah, we'll just do some quick details as we all always do. Uh, this album was released uh, August 17, 1959. I looked through some lists of what albums Miles Davis had released before this to try and figure out, you know, how many. This is somewhere around like his 30th album. Um, and he had done albums with other people, but this is like 10 years into his career, which is just staggering compared to even some of the more active rock artists that we've talked about so far, like the beach boys and the Beatles, this is like all they did was record in yeah. the fifties, uh, miles Davis and his, and his group. So that that's really cool. And even though it's only in quotations, only 10 years into his career, he had recorded a ton of music was very experienced. So that's very cool. Um, this, album which is only five tracks although it, it plays about i think around 45 minutes um they were all written by miles davis and bill evans is also credited with miles davis on blue and green and flamenco sketches and that is because he he certainly wrote blue and green uh and certainly wrote at least part of flamenco sketches but it was very common in those days for the leader of the band to just get the credit for everything Right. And without getting too much into it, even on, you know, the opening track, uh, So What, there's so much of Bill Evans' flavor in that from the opening, even all the way through it. But anyways, we'll we'll get into maybe some more of the meat of that, but absolutely Bill Evans, uh, you know, a huge influence on this. Um, This uh, album sales are kind of weird to track, but at least 4 million uh, since it was released. Um, This is listed as being davis's uh, best-selling album and most people say it's the best-selling al- jazz album of all time which i don't think is is off base to say although the genre is so wide 
Um, yeah, for sure. There, there may be something out there that could be classified as jazz that, that would have sold more than this. Um, yeah, it kind of depends. Like if you, if you throw the net wide enough to encompass like some singers, for example, yeah. you know, like Sinatra, Crosby, people like that. And then, you know, if, if you throw the net wide enough on the other end to, you know, talk about a, a one name that comes to mind, one of the few improvised musicians with actual album sales, somebody like Chuck Mangione, you know, who in the feel so good era was, right. you know, selling albums like hotcakes. So yeah, I totally agree with Mike that it is, it is a little amorphous how to track this, but it is without a doubt, in the top five selling improvised music albums of all time. And it's probably one or two for sure. I don't think you get much of an argument. Um, you know, if you threw that out there, most people are satisfied with that. Um, one thing that we, we always talk about, and I've really actually enjoyed talking about this section, Ben, and I don't know about you, but we, we always talk about the, the album artwork and the cover and, I don't know. There's just something fun about it. It brings another aspect to the art and the whole package. So this cover is, is very classic. It's a picture of, of miles, uh, playing his trumpet with his eyes, mostly closed and it's just black in the background. And then we see something here that we haven't seen on any of the albums we've talked about yet, a listing of the artists on the front. And and this is certainly something that's more akin to jazz, but albums that have, you know, either the track listing or, or list of the artists on them. That's something that's really from the sixties or fifties or earlier. And we haven't really seen that yet. So this is kind of a first for the albums that we've talked about so far. So it's just the name miles Davis is kind of blue and then has all of the artists listed on the front. And, you know, of course, uh, First of all, yes, that that is very common in jazz, and a, a big reason for that is because a lot of you know people will buy records. Like if you buy a record, you know, uh, by Death Cab for Cutie, you know who's in that band, right? And honestly, if the bass player changes, if you're a diehard fan, it might matter, but otherwise, it probably doesn't. Um, whereas if you buy an album by a jazz musician, most jazz musicians don't have working bands or they, you know, they have working bands that change over time. And so from album to album, who's actually on the record, like if you buy an album by Miles Davis, that means nothing about who else is on the album. Cause you know, especially for Miles Davis, because so many people went through his bands. So, and some of these dudes that who are on the front of this record and they are all men, um, were the you know, these were some of the heaviest of the heavy, right. not all of them, but most of them were. So oh, yeah. that's, it's not like miles needed any help selling records, but I mean, if you were wondering, well, is this the miles record I should buy? And you looked at these names and you were a jazz fan of that period. I mean, it, it was kind of a no brainer. Yeah. And for our, you know, if you're familiar at all with jazz and I don't know if all of our, li- our like half a dozen listeners are familiar with jazz, uh, <laughs> um, you know, names like, you know, Cannonball Adderley and John Coltrane, like these are huge names in jazz um, that even the mildest, mildest of listener will probably know. Did we have, do we have a historic sense? Did these other significant artists who all, you know, had their own um, sort of jazz celebrity, uh, were they joining this project in an effort to create the greatest album of all time? Or was this fairly normal for, for the greats of an era to just get together periodically to um, record and see what came out of it. At the time of this recording, uh, this album was recorded in March and April of 1959. At the time of this recording, while many of these guys were well-known names, 
uh, Miles Davis's name is in 20 times bigger font on the front of the album for a reason. He yeah. is the great <laughs> on this album at this time. And while certainly people like John Coltrane was coming into his own at this time, you know, Wynton Kelly was fairly well known. I think it's fair to say that this is still fairly early in the careers of a lot of these guys. And they are now household names in the world of jazz. And uh, all of them went on to stellar careers. But this, I would not characterize this at the time as an all-star okay. ensemble. It turns out that Miles had, one of the things he's best known for is he had an amazing ability to pick musicians. And so he, everybody who passed through his band, well, not everybody, the, the I would say the majority of people who passed through a Miles Davis band went on to careers partly because they had been you know, blessed by the Pope and, and partly because he was so good at picking musicians that the people he picked were the people who should go on to have great careers because they were amazing musicians. Um, so these people would have been known to any jazz fan at this time. I don't have any, any qualms about saying that, but the way that they have been kind of enshrined in the jazz canon at this point was still to come for most of the musicians on this record. Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. And I don't know if either of you guys do this, but you know, I, one thing I love about listening to jazz radio is they talk about the artists. And when I buy an album, and I mean when I buy a physical CD, one of the first things I usually do when I listen to it is I open up the liner notes and see what other musicians have joined in because you don't usually hear about that. Mm. Um, you know, when you when you listen to the radio, listen to the they don't talk about it even if it's a single. You know, if there's another vocalist, another musician, and I love doing that. And seeing who else who else appeared on the album, kind of behind the scenes, is really cool. Well, and it, you know, getting back to the artwork, um, there's only one person featured on the cover. Uh, this is not an ensemble recording. This is Miles Davis with, <laughs> in smaller font, this the rest of these players. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Mike, uh, I mean, you make a great point that certainly the way a lot of people get into jazz is they hear a record they like. And then because of this very practice that we're talking about of listing the musicians, you're able to say, okay, well, one of the things I really loved on this was mm. the drum work. Who plays the drums? Okay. It's Jimmy Cobb. I wonder what else he's played. Right. And then you can go and find it. Like I remember once I bought a, uh, and I'm about to turn the sexy factor way up. So just be careful. I bought a Jethro Tull cassette box set. <laughs> Um, in the uh, <laughs> late 80s or early 90s. And uh, I'm sorry, but I'm married. I just want to put that out there just uh, for the flood of mail that's about to come in. So many disappointed uh, people right now. <laughs> I, I, yes, uh, men and women, one assumes. Um, also music fans. Uh, but anyway, in the center of the big booklet, you know, it was it was cassettes, but it came in like an LP-sized box. And so they didn't have to make two boxes, basically. And so in the center of the of this thing was this huge book. And in the center of that book, there was this guy, and I can't remember his name, but he used to draw these very elaborate rock and roll family trees. So he would start with whatever band was featured, and then he would just, from those branches, he would show you all the other bands that were related because those people had played in them. And I discovered so many bands because of that Jethro wow. Tall box set oh, because cool. – 
you know, there's been like 5,000 members of Jethro Tull. And so between them, they've played in every band that ever existed, you know, going back to, you know, the 1800s or something. So by the time this tree was finished expanding inside this book, I mean, I had like seen every rock band that there was to know about. And most of those I had never heard of. And so I just remember being like, oh my God, I'm going to listen to all this music, you know, as soon as I can find some of it. And that's the same thing with jazz. I mean, that's just, that's how it works in the jazz world is that you discover somebody on a record, you dig what they do, and then you you know, you're able to kind of extrapolate from there. Wikipedia trail before Wikipedia. That's exactly right. That's now we don't have to buy cassette box sets of Jethro <laughs> Tull, you know, thank the maker. We, I'm, you probably still should, but, uh, but yeah, now with Wikipedia, that's exactly right. I mean, if you open the Wikipedia entry for kind of blue, you'll see that all of them, I assume that all yeah. of the names of the musicians on it, uh, you know, are highlightable and are highlighted and you can click on any one of them and mm-hmm. you'll get their discography. And it's it's beautiful. We live in this amazing yeah. era for music fans now. And another amazing thing, uh, you're our fourth guest on the show. And with that reference of Jethro Tull, 50% of our guests have referenced Jethro Tull. So thank you, Jason. <laughs> As it should be. I, I'm mildly disappointed that it's only 50%, uh, but I will still keep listening. Uh, it's pretty high percentage considering uh, – that it's 2019. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, can I hazard a guess that all of your guests have been men of a certain age? Uh, with one exception. Okay. We, we had on, uh, uh, you probably have crossed paths a time or two with uh, Reverend Dr. Donna King, uh, the uh, pastor up in Belfont who does oh, yes. the underground railroad tours. She came on for our uh, really powerful look at Marvin Gaye's what's going on. Um, so I assume she was the other person to reference Jethro Tull then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she went through his discography yeah. like yeah. you wouldn't believe. <laughs> um, I think, did you just refer to Jethro Tull as his discography? Because if so, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, this is you're, you're really, def- yeah, because it's, it's the name it's of a, a band. band. <laughs> it's not a dude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He and, he and Pink Floyd went on a duo tour together in the 70s. It was a really good time. Oh, yeah. Uh, just one of the- I love Pink. Which one's him? Yes. Which one is Pink? Yeah. Actually. Um, just one other thing about this cover. Uh, you're going to have to beep this, Ben. So here it comes. But um, Miles Davis uh, often described people as dressing clean as a broken. And uh, folks, you can email the show for what just went behind that beep there that Miles used to say. But um, Miles is dressed to the nines on this album cover. And besides being yeah. an icon yeah. in the world of music, Miles was a very real icon in the world of fashion. And I mean, in the population at large, like not just among jazz musicians, he was in the, you know, he was in time, he was in life, he was in those kind of magazines where people all over America would have seen him. And although it wasn't always suit and tie like this, that certainly at this point of his life, it was, but you know, not too many years after this, uh, there was a whole revolution in fashion in the sixties and miles went right along with it or led it in some cases, particularly in, in uh, black fashion in the black community. And, you know, miles always dated, you know, these models and actresses who were often on the covers of his records. And the miles Davis thing was absolutely, it was rooted in the music, but he was, a a real genius, both I think intentionally and just because he was that kind of guy at crafting this entire image so that it wasn't, yes, it was the music, but people also kind of wanted to dress like miles and, you know, he had cool cars and, you know, like I said, he was, you know, he had a model on his arm. I mean, you know, for a certain, for a certain era of uh, American life, he was one of those people who was kind of the epitome of a certain kind of male cool. Mm. 
um, you know, mm-hmm. particularly in the black community, but certainly not just in the black community. He was one of those people. I think it was probably safe for a lot of white people to like, you know, at a certain time too. Well, I know we think of the civil rights movement as being primarily focused in the sixties, but, um, you know, the fifties had, had just as many significant moments, uh, of, of cultural change, cultural shift happening. And just like we did with, um, Marvin Gaye's cover, I think, I think this one, strikes an image of uh, calm uh, black power that I think was so, so important to fuel the fires that were burning at the time of like cultural changes happening. Um, we are no longer looked down upon. We are, we are people um, who create culture. We are people with significant voice here in this country. And, you know, the, I mean, the jazz world was, uh, in, in many instances, way ahead of the curve yeah. uh, in terms of this stuff um, because, you know, there were integrated bands decades before there were, you know, the civil rights movement uh, really came into its own. And, you know, there were white band leaders with black musicians in their bands who refused to play segregated shows, uh, who refused to stay in segregated hotels. Uh, you know who I mean obviously it it wasn't all peaches and cream and everybody you know raising a fist but there were there are many examples in the annals of you know the swing era the big band era uh, you know in up into the time we're talking about and beyond where the jazz world was bringing people together across racial lines uh, often in ways that were really not allowed in almost any other field of endeavor both in terms of the musicians but also in terms of the fans uh, you know where long before uh, there were black and white entertainment spaces for most other kinds of things, uh, there were some clubs where blacks and whites could come together, uh, you know, to see the musicians. And then, you know, there were bands where you could see uh, a black man on stage with, uh, you know, absolutely at a peer level with his white counterparts. Mm. Uh, Or in the case of the album that we're talking about, uh, all but one of the people on this album is black and there's one white guy. Um, you know, which Miles was often uh, criticized for when he would hire a, a you know white musician, and uh, you know he would say, I, you know, I don't care if they're. He, there's some famous quote about I don't care if they're, and then a series of colors, you know, as long as they can play. Right. Um, so you know, the the jazz world was certainly a place where, uh, at a time when it actually like there was money involved, like Miles was rich. Um, you know, there was there was a time when the jazz world was the popular entertainment of the day, so there was real money on the line, and and people would would put that money on the line in order to keep their bands together and, uh, you know, to not let uh, members of their bands be mistreated in, you know, in some instances. Wow. So that was the cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, was just gonna... I don't know if the music's any good, but boy, it sure is a pretty record to look at. It's, it's so interesting how, how deep we're able to go, you know, on this and, and particularly Jason, because this is a genre that we haven't touched yet in our discussions about the albums on this list. OK, so th- it's cool to kind of delve into this and it, it's really neat to see kind of what this is opening up just in our discussion. Uh, very, very cool. And the cool thing is, though, like if you talked about what's going on, you've already talked about this genre because. I mean, like, there is absolutely no way in this life or the next that the musicians who play on what's going on weren't hip to everything that we're talking about yeah. in this record. And For sure, yeah. Music. Um, I mean, that's just one example. You know, I mean, the same. Uh, you know, the same with Dylan. Uh, I can't remember who else is on this. The t- I've listened to a bunch of episodes. But I can't remember what they were about anymore uh, because I'm that age. But uh, you know, certainly <laughs> in a way that is not as true now. 
the music that you know is toward the top of that Rolling Stone list, a lot of the people in that list, even if they played music that no one would listen to and say, oh, I can clearly see the jazz influence, this stuff was all swirling around at the same time. You know, and yeah, if you were yeah. if you were playing in a Greenwich Village club like Dylan did at a certain point in his life, the you know the club next door might have had Miles Davis, uh, you know, playing at it. I mean, there was a time when this was all when the Zeitgeist contained all of those things at once. Uh, you know, Miles opened for rock bands at various times in his career, and uh, you know there it, th- that stuff. It's coming back together now in a very cool way with some artists, but. Um, you know, there was certainly a time, I think, in the 80s and 90s when there was kind of a wall between a lot of different kinds of music. But even back in the era that we're talking about in the late 50s and early 60s, there was a lot of shoulder rubbing going on between these genres in a, in a pretty cool way. I'm, I'm interested as a, a person who's still learning a lot uh, to, to spend just a moment in time. And I know that we could probably spend hours this talking about the transition for this album. In my little bit of homework that I did, I, I learned that he, this album is significant in his career because he shifts jazz styles, right? He moves from um, a hard bop style that he had been uh, sort of basing most of his work on to this, under, this idea of modality. And um, can you guys sort of fill me in on what's going on there with, uh, <laughs> and maybe not taking two hours, but like <laughs> first, first <laughs> of minutes. all, First of all, Ben, I think... I've, I've actually started to cry a little bit just hearing you say those words. <laughs> <laughs> a whole new world. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, just, beautiful. Oh, man. Just, just, I've got goosebumps uh, hearing you <laughs> say things like modality. Oh, man. A new stage in our relationship. Um, th- this is something... Only because I love. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that I've gotten my notes a little later on, but but since you brought it, I really, Jason, I wanted to get your opinion on it as someone who's uh, a little deeper in the jazz scene, uh, this idea of modality. And we don't want to get too technical, um, you know, for our listeners who, who aren't really into that side of it. But I think but any I, listener will go, will listen to the albums that came before this and realize a distinctive sound change when they put on this album. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. I mean, I think we can kind of we can just give a very quick history lesson. So, sure. I, I mean, very, very quick. So uh, this is about 40 years into recorded jazz. Um, you know, very earliest stuff is uh, what you think of when you think of real old, like, you know, Louis Armstrong tracks or kind of, you know, New Orleans musicians. It's it's very marchy sounding and there's not a lot of improv and, uh, you know, it's we're all used to that kind of tinny recording you know if you see some black and white footage that kind of music that plays under it then uh bands get uh often a little bigger um we get into kind of the swing era and uh you know that's when we think of like uh, in in one sense when we think of people like glenn miller that thing and then on the other hand we have uh you know duke ellington you know take the a train that there's that kind of swing music. There's a lot of singers in there as well. People who are, you know, popularizing. Uh, and this is the this is the music of the day. Like if you're going to go out for an evening, you're going to go out and dance to bands like this. And it, you know, there's between the kind of white and black worlds of this music, there are some divides. There's kind of this like sweeter, uh, like sound on the on the white side that's you know still a little scared, uh, well more than a little scared of the influence of black people. <laughs> Um, and, but in any case, it's kind of, it's recognizable as being of a piece. 
then along comes the 1940s, um, and uh, t- primarily two people, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. Um, uh, Charlie Parker, known as Bird, um, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Dizzy obviously not his birth name, but that's what everybody knows him as. Um, uh, one play, Charlie Parker plays saxophone, Dizzy Gillespie plays trumpet. And uh, before them, the, the single largest factor in changing the world of jazz was Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong revolutionized the world of how people improvised, uh, of the way instruments were used in a virtuosic way. Uh, he set the standard. He was the person everybody emulated. He was, he, uh, he probably still is the cornerstone of American music and probably the most important American musician ever, no matter what kind of music you like, because of the way he changed the way instruments were used and the way people performed on them. Um, so then uh, Louis Armstrong, so then the 40s, uh, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, they create this kind of music called bebop. Um, and it's more, it's, it's kind of similar to hip hop where it's more than music. It's also like a culture that goes along with it. Um, you know, there's there's dance, there's, uh, you know, kind of styles of dress, the whole thing. It's like a whole package. And uh, that's in the 40s. It's really characterized by these very angular lines. A lot of it is very fast. Uh, you know, people start playing the drums really quickly. And then hard bop, which is what Miles kind of comes of age in the bebop period. And then he plays with Charlie Parker. That's kind of his first big gig. In fact, he goes to New York City from his native East St. Louis to look for. Uh, he's the son of a dentist. He's affluent. He's going to go to Juilliard. He goes to find Charlie Parker. He ends up in his band. The rest is history. But Miles starts playing bebop. That's his first his first thing. Hard bop comes right after that, kind of in the in the fifties or, or you know first part in the middle of the fifties. And it it's kind of like bebop, but it's just a little kind of like tougher sounding. It's maybe sometimes slightly larger bands. If you want to know what hard bop is, go on Spotify, type in the words blue note playlist and play literally any song that comes up. <laughs> and that's probably going to be a hard bop. Song. Faster too. Uh, no, uh, some, some of it's fast. There's kind of more funk oftentimes, like not what we would not like George Clinton funk, but like <laughs> kind of what, like what in the fifties, like you might've heard in like a, uh, you know, a, a, a dance house like down south okay. or something. Maybe some more, some Hammond organ in there, that kind of thing. And again, there, any serious jazz person is listening to my voice right now is, I'm sure, screaming at the at their radio. And again, I t- as I said, I have holes in my knowledge, but this is kind of the basics. So now we're in the in getting toward the late part of the '50s, and the one th- one of the main things that has united every kind of music I've just talked about is that they're all based on sets of chord changes. And mm-hmm. we uh, we all can imagine what that is in our brain. Like for if you just if you can imagine what the blues sounds like, that's a, a set of three chords almost always. Every song you've ever heard, you know, by the Beatles in the first part of their career, it's probably three mm-hmm. chords or four chords. These are just and all these things are they're this, they're called song forms, and it's the way that you know that you're back at the top again. Like. Uh, it's not a great example, but if you sing, you know, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, blah, 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 happy birthday to you, you know, that's the end. Like you just know that's how the song goes together. Well, it's the same with all this other music that all of these things have chord changes in them. And what most musicians are doing in this era is they're either playing popular like Broadway and Tin Pan Alley songs of the day, and they'll play the melody and then they'll improvise afterwards, but they'll play over the same set of chord changes. So the band will keep playing the same thing it's been playing, and the lead soloist will be making up new stuff on the spot, and then they'll play the melody again and everybody goes home. Um, By the time now that we arrive at Kind of Blue, that's pretty much been what improvised music has been. 
it's a, a strict set of chord changes. There's many different variations of that, but you pretty much know, okay, I'm going through the song and now the song is just going to repeat and I'm going to do the same thing I did, except I'm going to make some stuff up. And if I'm going to take a second chorus, the song's going to repeat again and I'm going to make some more stuff up. But it's very, very simple to know where you are. And because a lot of these things are based on popular songs, it's kind of easy for the listener too. Mm -hmm. like, you know, if, if somebody's playing, uh, you know, old man river, uh, and then improvising over it, like if you know how old man river goes, you kind of know where you are in the song. So now we get into the late fifties. And the reason that this album is important and, and kind of groundbreaking, even though it's not the very first example of this thing ever being done before is that, uh, what Miles did on a previous album on one song was because of some uh, of a, uh, a book he had read and some uh, kind of classical music he and, and more experimental music he had heard. He decided, well, what if instead of playing over these chords so that the song just repeats over and over and over again and we just make stuff up over this kind of fixed bass? What if we just picked scales to play off of? So a scale is like, you know. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. That's one kind of scale. And depending on where you start in that scale and on the ways that you change the notes. So if you kind of picture a piano in your head, there's white keys and black keys. Mm -hmm. And uh, the black keys are sharps or flats of the white notes that are on either side of them. Um, it, by the way, you kind of use those sharps and flats and where you start in the scale, you can create these things called modes. And so a, a mode is just kind of a different, you know, kind of funky kind of scale, not not funky in the George Clinton sense, but interesting. Um, and they're just ways these have been used since since notated music began as means of coming up with different ways to use. There's only 12 notes that exist. And although that's not true, let's all pretend. It's true. <laughs> Otherwise, we have to we have to talk about things that no one wants to hear about. But there's only 12 notes that exist. Uh, and so. You, there's only so many ways you can arrange those 12 notes. And so you got to come up with some interesting ways to do it. And so modes are one way to do that. So what kind of blue does that on, a, on an entire album hadn't really been done previously was it freed up the musicians greatly to not have to play over these chord progressions. They could now just kind of know what key and what, what scale they were using and they now had a lot of freedom. Hmm. So even though you kind of have a general idea of when the song starts over again, like the song form, you don't you're not just going to hear the same stuff under you all the time because everybody else is free. You know, while Miles is playing his solo or Coltrane is playing his solo, all the other musicians are also free to experiment yeah. with these scales. Yeah. Um, so essentially, it just it kind of opens up the parameters of what you can do with improvisation. This would be taken to even greater heights by other musicians uh, and and other kinds of freedom would be incorporated by other musicians as well. And in fact, right around this same time, Ornette Coleman came onto the scene and created another kind of freedom that in, in some ways right at that moment was more shocking than what Miles had done. But that's essentially what we've got here. We've We've gone from this fairly highly structured music to something that is still structured. It's not free in the sense of you can do anything you want, but it's freer. It has more space for the musicians to explore and solo because they're not bound to these chord structures in the mm. same way. So is this is this uh, so that I can try and place it in jazz lore? Maybe is this album renowned for primarily for the way that it changes the genre, or is it really 
does it stand uh, the test of time and continue to be great even after the genre has been changed and people start living in that space? Does it hold up well um, for the style that it created? The answer to both those questions is yes. It yeah. is renowned for being uh, a landmark shift in the way musicians approached the concept of improvising. And it is one of the greatest collections of musicians ever recorded, creating some of the greatest music ever recorded. Yeah, I would I would go in and say that you could play this. And Jason, I'd love to hear if you agree or not. You could play this music in any jazz club in any decade and no one would bat an eye. Oh yeah. I mean, people are still, people still play all of this music now. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, jazz, jazz has evolved in a lot of yes. ways, but, but this is still, this music is, is still beloved yeah. uh, and still, still used. These methods are still used all the time. Like, I think just like Ben, you and I could probably hear a rock song and probably pick out, the decade it was from. I think any, any jazz uh, fan could listen to this and probably pick where it came from. But at the same time, you could play it at any point in time and it would be welcome and relevant and enjoyed and loved. Um, well, yeah, and, it, and for some reason it strikes me as being pretty different than um, – an album we just reviewed a couple ago, uh, the compilation of uh, Elvis, Elvis's Sun Sessions. Those, you can tell why those songs were seminal for rock and roll music. But it's Elvis, and you know, aside from his, you know, his, his aging set of like really, really hardcore fans, I think we let that music exist in its time period and appreciate the way that it pivoted music but but don't go back to it uh as if that's the greatest that rock music ever was this feels different in that it, it continues to be held up as like this is the greatest jazz can be and it was sort of seminal i might take issue with that greatest jazz can be um label like i i would say that this is one of those times when a bunch of people who turned out to be some of the greatest practitioners of their instruments came together to try something that was relatively mm -hmm. new. Um, I mean, you know, very, very relatively new. It was extremely new. And, and they pretty much nailed yeah. it. Like one of the things about kind of blue that's cool is that, um, you know, early Charlie Parker recordings, there's a lot of like figuring stuff out and then all of it. And then, he, you know, he kind of got it to a place, you know, same with, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, that kind of stuff. Whereas, when it came time to create modal jazz, these guys just went into a studio, recorded like there's there are no complete second takes mm -hmm. of any of these songs. There, uh, no, no, no. I should say there are no complete multiple takes of any of these songs. Uh, only one of the first takes was issued. They played flamenco sketches through once, and that was the take that got issued. Uh, for all <laughs> the other songs, they had to you know they played them more than once, but they only played part of them more than once. Right? Like they started and they were like, no, no, no. I want it to feel more like this. Okay. Then they played a complete take and that's it. So unlike many of the <laughs> albums of this era where, and even Miles Davis albums, where when they finally release the box set, you find out that they, well, this is only version 17 of this song. You know, there's 16 other versions that are all complete. And to my ear, any one of those could have been issued. This was a case where they pretty much went in and they just, they just <laughs> got it, you know, in several hours. 
Um, they did it over two recording sessions, uh, but that was for logistic reasons as much as anything else. And then to have to basically like birth that thing fully formed yeah. into the world, you know, not like, well, this is my, this is my first try. I think I'm getting close. This was basically like, here, I created another kind of yeah. jazz for you. Yeah. <laughs> here it is. <laughs> oh, and by the way, everything you try to do with it from here on out will be, maybe some of it will be as good as this, but none of it will be better yeah. than this in this particular kind of jazz. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's kind that, of amazing. That feels very different than popular music, which ends up feeling uh, like it most relevant to the moment that it came out and then kind of drops off after that. I, I think there's a lasting power in this um, that I don't think we get in the more poppy stuff on the top of this Rolling Stone list. I think one thing that's helpful with an album like Kind of Blue, and I think the same is true for you know Dylan records, for, for what's going on, for, for a lot of the albums that get toward the top of this list, is it's super helpful that these are being played on instruments that have not become mm. dated. Like I love music from the eighties. Like I, I, high school, I was all about Depeche mode, but if you listen to early Depeche mode records, I mean, you know, it sounds awesome to me now because I grew up with it, but, and those synth sounds, some of them are coming back around, I guess, but there's like a kind of eighties music that you listen to it. And in, in one second, you're like, Oh, okay. Well, let me get the shoulder yeah. pads back in this yeah. jacket here. <laughs> And it's super helpful, like, you know, the sun sessions or, I mean, a lot of music that kind of sounds timeless is greatly assisted by the fact that we still use the same instruments mm -hmm. to make that music now. Right. Uh, you know, if you play a symphony, uh, uh, instruments have evolved. I mean, I'm speaking in very general terms. A piano has evolved since it was a forte piano, since it was a harpsichord, of course. But generally speaking, if you play a piece of music that was written in the 1700s, you are more or less going to use the same instruments now to play it. And so you don't have to get over the fact that it sounds weird just on the face of it. Like you don't have to get through anything. Also, this was recorded in 1959, by which time people had actually figured out how to make recordings. It didn't sound like they were recorded with a mm -hmm. tin can and a string. So unlike when you listen to Charlie Parker's music, which – uh, uh, almost no one alive ever heard in person, right? Most of those people are dead now. Hmm. So, uh, certainly there are some people alive, but there's not a ton of them. So for all the rest of us who never got to see, because Charlie Parker died young, for all the rest of us who never got to see Charlie Parker when he was alive, which is almost everyone I've ever met, we've only ever heard these kind of tinny recordings because they hadn't come up with mm. good microphone technology and good studio recording technology and tape. So all of this music benefits from yeah. not sounding dated. That's a huge, huge assist yeah. to kind of blue. If this thing sounded like, uh, uh, you know, kid Oliver record from 19, you know, 21, if that, if even if the music was exactly the same, but it sounded like what you're used to hearing when, when people in old baseball video are waving too fast, <laughs> this, yeah. it wouldn't, it just wouldn't be the same. But we can all imagine being in this room in New York City in Columbia Studios with these guys because it sounds like we are. And that's a super huge assist mm. to the longevity of this music, I think. Can I just insert here, even though you haven't asked the question, that I have hung out with one of the guys on this record? You got to give us more than that. I can't. Yeah, I can't even process <laughs> yeah. that. What do you mean? What do you mean? So uh, I've hung out with Jimmy Cobb before. Come on. I've hung out. I've, I have met and interviewed many sidemen who played with Miles Davis. Um, but the only one I ever got a chance to meet who played on this record was Jimmy Cobb. Um, and the I had dinner with him in a small town in northern Japan. 
And the and the other guy who was at dinner that night was Eddie Gomez, who one degree of separation away was the bass player for many years in Bill Evans trio. Bill Evans plays piano in this record. Uh, also, just to do this so the jazz gods don't hit us with a lightning bolt. Uh, the people on this record are Miles Davis on trumpet, John Coltrane, who plays tenor saxophone, uh, Julian Cannonball Adderley. Cannonball Adderley is how he's generally referred to, who plays yeah. alto saxophone. Uh, Bill Evans plays piano on all but one track in which Wynton Kelly plays piano, and there's a whole story about that that we don't have to get into, but anyway. <laughs> uh, Paul Chambers plays bass, and Jimmy Cobb plays drums. So I lived in Japan twice, and the first time I lived there, I was a student, and I lived in this small town in northern Japan. But the weird thing about it was that one of the greatest jazz musicians uh, in uh, the, the first part of Japanese jazz history was from this town, and, and he had retired to it after he just stopped playing because he got sick. And he opened a jazz club in this town, but he had played with all these amazing American jazz musicians because he was the drummer who would play with them when they came to Japan in the, in the 50s and 60s and, and early 70s. And so he knew all these amazing people. So whenever they would come to play in Japan, if they had an extra day, they would get on the bullet train and they would go up to his town and they would play in his tiny little jazz club. I mean, I mean, absolutely, I, no matter what size room you're sitting <laughs> in right now, it's bigger than this jazz club. So unless you're recording this in a closet. Um, so the second time I, I moved, I lived in Japan, uh, I moved there with my my first wife and uh, we, but we didn't have jobs yet, so we went and stayed with my old host family up in this town. We wanted to move down to Tokyo, but we went and stayed in this town. And when we were there, we got a phone call, or they got a, my host family got a phone call from this guy who we all called the master, the drummer. And the master said, uh, there are two musicians, American jazz musicians coming to my club tonight. Do you want to come have dinner with them? <laughs> and I said, well, who, you know, yes, of course, but who is it? And he said, oh, it's Jimmy Cobb and Eddie Gomez, which is uh, it's sad that we're talking about <laughs> jazz because that doesn't have the right impact. So let, let me pick up the phone again. And, I, and he says, there's two American jazz musicians coming. And I say, who is it? And he said, or there's two musicians coming. I say, who is it? And he says, it's Prince and David Bowie. It's like that kind of a thing if you're if you're a jazz head, right? So, so I was just like, yeah, well, I thanks. don't know I get it now. how this could be true, but sure. So my uh, Jennifer was my first wife's name. Jennifer and I go and we're walking down the main street of this town. It's hours before we're supposed to be at this dinner. And across the street are the only two other not. This is a small town in northern Japan. There are no non-Japanese people here. When I lived there, I was the only one. Um, and we see two other people walking toward us who are not Japanese. Uh, Eddie Gomez, Latino. Uh, Jimmy Cobb is black. Walking toward us. <laughs> it is obvious that it is Eddie Gomez and Jimmy. Like, there's no, there's no chance of a mistake. It's not. You can't have one of those moments where you think it's somebody. It's there's no chance of a mistake. It's a hundred percent, absolutely. Bill Evans' bass player and Miles Davis's drummer. And I had a rare for me moment. Although I was much younger then, but this is more than twenty years ago now. But uh, I had a rare for me moment of I'm not crossing this. I don't care if one of them has a heart attack right now and drops down. <laughs> I am not crossing the street to talk to either of these guys for any reason. I am terrified of going to talk to these two guys. But then I have no choice because at dinner it turns out it's just us and them and the master and his <laughs> wife and my host mom. And Jeremy Steig, a flute player who also played with with Bill Evans, who was on tour with these guys, and a piano player whose name I've since forgotten, and I'm very embarrassed to say that he was he was not at the same level of notoriety of the other three guys. He was from Las Vegas, so I mean, I I am 
I'm certainly no more than four feet from Jimmy Cobb. It's a very small place. The table is very small. And, you know, Jimmy and Eddie are, are there. And the only thing was that no one else in the room spoke English. So and I was the only person in the room who spoke both English and Japanese. And it, I just and I just couldn't translate everything all the time. So essentially, no one else talked. And just my wife and I talked to Jimmy and Eddie and Jeremy Steig. And the thing is, though, like, I didn't know what to do. I had never met anybody who was at, you know, I know that it's jazz fame and it's meaningless, but to me it was huge. I had never met anybody like that. And we just ended up, like, talking about the food we were eating. I mean, I didn't ask either of them one question about Miles Davis, about Bill Evans, about their other enormous careers that had gone on long after their time with these musicians. I don't think we talked about jazz for <laughs> one second of that dinner. We just ended up talking about Japanese food and the town and how are you liking the country and all of that kind of stuff because I was I was so scared. It's hilarious that I've spent the, now the intervening 20 years interviewing people for a living. But it was amazing. And I really – I don't have a photo. You know, this is, I mean, long before people had cameras with them all the time or any of that kind of stuff. I have nothing but the memory, but it is a cherished memory for me. And I've since that time, I have met and had much longer conversations and closer relationships with other people. But this was the other, you know, famous musicians. But this was the first time for me that I encountered somebody who was like part of the yeah. the bedrock of this music, and it was just it was an amazing, amazing experience. So. The fact that I am, you know, one Kevin Bacon away from kind of blue still kind of shocks me when I when I think about it. And I feel incredibly grateful, uh, you know, that I had that chance to to hang out with those guys. That's amazing. <laughs> that I Jason, I respect your patience. We've been talking to you for like an hour and a half. And you just had that in your back pocket the whole time. I will say in my defense, because I know how work, I had given that question to Ben in a text earlier this afternoon. But when we were had been talking for this long and he hadn't asked me about it, I thought, well, okay, I probably should mention that I have hung out with one of these guys. It might be the only oh, fun thing I say my. in this entire interview. So I want to get it. Well, and what are the questions that you wish you would have asked besides what Japanese food? Oh, man. I mean, yeah, if if I was just less of an idiot, I mean, I would have asked either of them about anything. I mean, I just would have said, Jimmy, tell me one story about hanging out with Miles. And I mean – you do have to like there is a thing where like if you met Ringo Starr today, I think you would think twice. You'd probably still do it. Yeah, right. But I think you would think twice before asking him lots of Beatles questions, you know, because that was a long time ago. And I mean, he had a big career since. Well, not as big a career, but I mean, you know, he's put out a lot of music. He's had his own big hits and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, same. That's even more true if you if you met Paul McCartney today. You know, he had he's had a, a bazillion hits since then. He's had a big life. You know, the whole thing. So when you meet a person like this who has had an amazing career on their own but is always going to be most famous like for being on this one record. I mean, I don't even know how many hundreds of albums Jimmy Cobb has been on. Same for Eddie Gomez. Uh, But, you know, Jimmy Cobb will forever have a place in jazz history because he played on this particular team in this one game. You know, this is is one of the greatest games that's ever been played. And there's only six you know, six guys on the team and he's one of those six. I mean, it's, you know, it's never going to get any, uh, seven guys. I'm sorry. There's two piano players. It's, it doesn't matter what else he does. It's, 
and it's just always going to be this, right? Like, so when you're sitting there, it's very hard to say like, well, tell me about what was it like to record kind of blue, even though you desperately want to say, what was it like to record kind of blue? Yeah. I just had this memory of, um, in Los Angeles at all the fancy Hollywood premieres, they want them to always be full. And so you can put your name on an email list to just be a seat filler to make sure that Hollywood productions are always full. And so as a struggling grad student with no money, I did that. I, my, my incredible wife was uh, supporting us with her nursing. And so she, uh, she would work evenings and weekends and I'd have free time and no money. And so I'd go and like be a seat filler at, at Hollywood premieres. And one time uh, I look back after the film is done and there is Wayne Gretzky standing in the lobby of this theater. Sure. Uh, Just a quick pause right here to say it's very important at this moment in time to know that of the three of us, two are Canadian. And that that is why Ben did not just say the name of a famous Hollywood celebrity, yeah. but instead <laughs> <Hockey said player. laughs> behind me was Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. That's amazing. There are, other, there are other celebrities there, but the one that was most important to me was Wayne Gretzky. Uh, and so I walk back thinking that same thought, like, I don't have anything to say to this man who is the greatest hockey player of all time, but I can't lose my chance to say something to him. So I went back and shook his hand and said something ridiculous. Like, thanks for all you've done for the game of hockey, Wayne. And he, he looked at his watch and said, my car is here and left the building. And I thought I have just chased away my only ever opportunity to ever meet this man. Um, so it's really good probably that you didn't start dinner by saying like, so what was miles like? Cause they probably would have got up and left. Uh. And you know, since then, like, uh, I have interviewed people who played with John Coltrane. I interviewed, uh, I've interviewed many miles Davis side, man. I've interviewed lots of people who've played with lots of famous people and also famous people. I, you know, I've, like I said, I've had Sonny Rollins. Oh, actually, I don't know if I said on the interview that people are actually hearing, but at one point I said, uh, you know, I've had Sonny Rollins on my show three times. In fact, I'm not even sure that people know I have a show and this particular interview that they're listening to. So anyway, I have a show called the jazz session where I interview jazz musicians. It's at the jazz session.com. Enough about that. <laughs> And so in those cases, I mean, I sometimes have asked those people, but I definitely feel like there is – I totally understand that conundrum of what do you say to the greatest hockey player of all time. And there's – that is absolutely a thing. And of course, your person number 20,000 in his life who said something akin to thanks for the everything you've done for the game of hockey or whatever or, you know, dude, you're the greatest or or whatever. I get that. But – there are people that I have had those kinds of conversations with who will engage you on yeah. that stuff. Like there who understand, you know, I get it that for me, you're the 20,000th person who said this to me, but for you, I'm the only Wayne Gretzky mm-hmm. or, you know, for you, I'm the only Ron Carter or the only Sonny Rollins or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I hope I have to believe. And I hope that at the very least people like that, that we approach, if we're not obnoxious about it, at least are somewhere inside gratified to have had that kind of an impact on the world that someone would just see them in a, in a room and feel so compelled that they had to go up and just thank them. Mm -hmm. You know, they have no other personal connection. Um, and I, I think in the jazz world, the jazz world is one of the places in American culture where we're pretty good at respecting elders. 
Um, I don't think we're very good at that in this country, you know, as, as a general rule. Um, but I think in the jazz world, we definitely have a lot of reverence for the people who, you know, made the path that we're all walking on. Um, so, you know, I've, I mean, I've, I, I think that we're in a place where people still really appreciate what, what has happened because so much of it is still being used today. And that makes me pretty happy. So, Somewhere in the uh, Sam Logic podcast um, format, we often go over the tracks. Uh, and sometimes when they're, you know, like far too long Rolling Stones albums, we don't talk about most of the tracks. Um, but <laughs> I'm curious what you all think about, you know, an album with just five tracks. Is it is it um, disrespectful to try and parse them out track by track or is this like um the sentiment that we had after listening to what's going on was really this deserves to be talked about as a whole not you know it's doing it a disservice to pull out each track and, and tear it apart um what, what about this one for for a jazz album with five tracks uh does it make sense to think about it as a whole or do you do you spend time just with one um any thoughts that come to mind i don't know i mean they are unique tracks. There are some similarities uh, between them for sure. But um, I don't know. I think because they were trying something new, it is kind of a, a complete package. Because this was a, a new thing they were doing. But I think that because the album and also with that the tracks are so iconic i think you kind of have to mention them all that's my thoughts on it jason anything there yeah i think uh i think certainly four of the five of these are now absolute jazz standards right no question it, you know there'll be a thousand cover versions of everyone the exception to that is flamenco sketches which i think is probably the least performed of these five tunes I think this is one of those cases uh, – I totally agree with Mike about the taking them as a whole. I think kind of blue itself as an entity, um, I would liken it to maybe Dark Side of the Moon um, where Dark Side of the Moon does have songs people know. Like Money was a hit on the radio. A lot of people recognize Great Gig in the Sky. Um, but Dark Side of the Moon as a whole is also incredibly mm -hmm. important like as a as a complete end-to-end -end Yeah, thing. that's helpful. I I think this is similar. A kind of blue means a particular thing. It means these yeah. five songs, yes. but it means this sound. It means these guys. It means, you know, all that, all that stuff. But then if you go in and I, because I don't think we can talk about these without getting into the weeds, I would just say that. So what Freddie freeloader blue and green and all blues are absolutely jazz standards. Uh, if you look in a book of standard jazz tracks that was written, you know, after this came out, uh, certainly at least three of those will be in there and maybe all mm. four. So what is easily one of the most recognizable uh, jazz melodies oh, uh, of all, of all time. Um, that might not mean anything to a lot of people who listen to this show, but that it, like you could, that is, that is as universal as, you know, da, 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 mm -hmm. in, yeah. in, in its genre. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that's why it felt so familiar for me, uh, you know, someone who doesn't profess to have any knowledge of, of jazz music, really. Uh, 
it felt like listening to an album I'd heard before when I put it on for the first listen. Uh, perhaps because it's almost become synonymous with what jazz is. It's 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 in the background of life in general, pop culture. Yeah, and you said you said Ben, and I I can't remember if you said it earlier in this interview uh, or not, but you said at one point, uh, you know, that there are some kinds of music that are just used when you know a film or a, a TV documentary or whatever wants to wants to evoke a certain right. era. Right. And I, I yeah. would say that if you want to evoke the late, a certain kind of late fifties in the U S um, you know, early sixties, a kind of like a madman. Smoky jazz lounge. Uh, yep. This yeah. is one of oh, those for things, sure. you know, it's, it's like this, or it's like take five by Dave Brubeck. That's one of those that's been in car commercials and, and songs on this album. Uh, you know, particularly so what? I guess probably so what in all blues for that particular purpose. They just they just find their way into things. Yeah. Um, even though Miles Davis's family is, you know, <laughs> they're real careful about what they find their way into. But <laughs> yeah, when I hear blue and green, I imagine you know walking into a black and white uh, PI's office. You know, <laughs> with I knew she was trouble when she walked in. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, well, those are you know. Jason listed them. Those are the five tracks. And um, Ben, did you have a did you have a favorite? I mean, this was all new to you. Was there one that jumped out to you when you listened to it? Um, the the two that Je- that Jason named as sort of iconic, so what in all blues, uh, are the two that I think drew me in because of how familiar they sounded. Blue and green was the track that was hardest for me. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's the shortest track, but it's the one that puts me to sleep it, it's so soothing and and uh pacifying that like i i uh, had to skip it a couple of the times that i listened through this album because i was like i know there's good stuff coming up here that i really want to digest and i can't it's i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna fall asleep maybe this is the stage of parenting that i'm in right now i can't i can't listen to that slow music girl <laughs> i'll just keel over but uh but but yeah i think and and i don't know that you know, a couple of weeks from now, I'll be able to hear the tracks mentioned and be drawn to this, the specific sound of the music. Um, but I really liked the whole thing. And that's, that's interesting. That's somewhat different than, uh, I guess the Stones album we already talked about where, you know, there were 19 tracks and we had a hard time thinking of the song when we would say the track names out loud. This feels very differently. I, I'm, in that case, it was because I just didn't like the songs, and so the track name didn't resonate with me. I like all of these, but I don't have the, I don't know, history or or knowledge to have that be a trigger that draws me to a specific kind of sound. Um, but I really appreciate it. And I do think that once, uh, you know, if you're uh, at all a conscientious music listener like you guys clearly are, I think once you've heard Kind of Blue... Even if you couldn't two weeks from now sing any of the melodies back to someone or tell them what the track names were, I think forever after when you hear something from this record, it, it does kind of burrow yeah. into your brain a little. Like I mean, this this record is so much an example of what a certain kind of jazz mm-hmm. sounds like that uh, you know it is kind of one of the cornerstones. And I, and I do think this sound like this. There's only a few sounds you can play for people that are like okay, obviously that's that's jazz music. You know, I know what that is and. You know, I think the same is true in pretty much any genre. And this is one of those records yeah. that just immediately puts you right where 
right where this yep. was. Uh, and no one would be amiss uh, if you, uh, you know, we talked about this, uh, you know, in terms of the Jethro Tull thing. Uh, if you just went and listened to music by anybody else on this record, if you just decided, all right, I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll buy or go on Spotify. And since all these people are dead, except Jimmy Cobb, I'm fine with either choice. And I'm sure Jimmy Cobb doesn't get any money from this. Um, if you were to go on and listen to this on Spotify and okay, I've heard that now. And then now I'm going to go and listen to one record by everybody who is in this band. That would be an amazing jazz mm. education. And then if mm. you listen to one record by everybody who was in those bands within a couple layers of that, you'd be in this whole huge, beautiful, broad world. And somewhere in there is something you'll like. Um, probably. Uh, it's just, you know, from from this place, you can feel very comfortable branching out. This is a really good uh, trunk for any kind of tree. There are many trunks you could draw from for a tree of improvised music, but this is a really good one to start with. And it, and you won't be bound to a specific jazz sound either, right? Because all these artists' uh, careers took Absolutely. different paths. Even if you only decide, I'm going to listen to a Miles Davis album from every decade in which he made a record. Oh, geez. So uh, 40s, <laughs> 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. He died in 1991. In fact, I was standing in a CD store in Japan when I heard that he died. Um, if you listen to a, just a track, uh, uh, even just a track from an album from all those decades, you, you would be hard-pressed to identify that those were the same in any oh. way unless you really could recognize what Miles Davis's trumpet sounds like. And even that undergoes some pretty staggering changes, but he sounds nothing like, you know, yeah. what came before this doesn't sound like this. What comes after this doesn't sound like this. What comes after that isn't even in the same universe <laughs> as this. And what comes after that has synthesizers and everything. I mean, like his, he once he was invited to a dinner at the white house when Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, and apparently my theory is wrong because they must have shaken hands and the universe didn't end. So um, I would have thought that would have been the effect of Miles Davis touching Ronald Reagan. But uh, in any case, he was he was sat down next to some, uh, you know, wealthy uh, socialite woman who uh, said, you know, I'm so and so of the so and so's, you know, or whatever. You know, you just fill in your own Huffington, Buffington, Buffington thing. She said that and she said, and who are you? And he just looked at her and said, I'm Miles Davis. I changed jazz five times and turned away. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think like, like that's my, you have to beep this again, but like Miles's whole life was kind of like just one giant <laughs> to anybody who wanted to tell him who to be yes. or how to be. He didn't. Miles had absolutely zero nostalgia in his nostalgia gland. He never played after, you know, he played this music for a couple years with different bands that made it sound totally different. Then he never played it again. Yep. And people would say to him, you know, come on, man. Why don't you, you could make a ton of money. Why don't you do a concert where you play kind of, dude, that was 1959. It's 1969 now. It's 1979 now. It's 1989 now. I don't do that anymore. He was just, he was a guy. He did not look back. Like he knew where he came from, but he just looked ahead and it was not important to him to rest on his laurels, to revisit the things that had made him famous. He just, it was done. It, he took a snapshot of where he was right then, and then he went to do the next thing. And that's uh, that's not totally 100% unique, but fairly unique, because especially when we think about rock artists, I mean, you're waiting for the encore, encore for them to play that number one hit, 
you know, you know they're going to play it. And he did not do that. Uh, and I think that's a hallmark of so many great musicians. So many people that I interview, when I ask them to talk about the record that they're on to talk about, you know, they do it, but it's a little grudging, to be totally honest, because all those people by that point are on to the next thing. Like, they're already looking ahead to what's next. That was a photo I took of where I was right then. But I don't need to keep looking at that photo. There's all this other stuff to do. And that is miles to a T. Well, I, I have a really good memory. I bought this album with you in, I want to say 2008, in L.A. at Amoeba Records Store. And that was you and I, and I think our spouses were there as well walking through a record store and not even necessarily talking, but just going and finding what we could find. And that was something that you and I, and just a little context, and Jason, you may know, Ben and I are, are lifelong friends. We've known each other since we were like a year old. So we've had a lot of life experience together. And that was something that we did a lot growing up, whether we were working or hanging out or traveling while we worked through the States. If we saw a record store, we'd go in and and just walk through it, maybe spend an hour in there and then kind of come out and compare our finds. Yeah. And Ben, I think this trip where I got this album, I think that's the last time that you and I did that. Oh, so that's uh, not to say that we will never do it again because I'm sure we will. And I hope we do, but it was kind of like, you know, you moved to LA and we hadn't seen each other in a while and we went out and that was one of the things we did there. And uh, that was the last time I can remember us doing that. So that's a really, really cool memory for yeah. me. And I have a strange ability. I don't know if you guys have this. I can go through just about every CD on my shelf, and I know where, where, and when I got it. Um, which is, I, I wish I could make money off that somehow. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> well, and it strikes me that uh, in in that sort of uh, obsessive consumerism that we had as uh, young adults. There was something where we were building off of each other because we would, you know, we'd be browsing, you know, an aisle apart or something, get to an album that has been significant to us and hold it up and be like, do you have this yet? If not, <laughs> if not, you need to have it, you know? And I think, uh, you know, I mentioned when we did the review of Pet Sounds that that's only in my collection because our friend Dustin was like, I don't care how many CDs you're buying today, you're also getting this, you know, that, that's sort of like... Uh, <laughs> If you if you call yourself a music fan, you need to own this this album as well. And um, so, I, yeah, I really I appreciate that memory, Mike, and I appreciate having friends like the two of you who I know are are willing to sort of throw something at me and say, if you think if you think music is something you care about, you should also consider this. Um, I, I've definitely learned a lot tonight just in the hour and a half that we've been rambling along about uh, Miles Davis and uh, an artist that I knew very little about until we began this project a couple months ago. So I'm appreciative. So why don't we start with our special guest, Jason? Do you think it was sound logic for Rolling Stone to put this at number 12? Uh, yes, if not higher. Um, absolutely. It's sound logic for it to be at least on this list and at least at number 12. Uh, I think and I, I mean, I, I'm comfortable with 12. This album certainly influenced a lot of the world outside of the jazz world. It influenced a lot of the rock world, uh, either directly because people listen to this record or because the way it approached music making seeped into other parts of the music world because jazz musicians were also studio session players and other records or because they, you know, like the jazz fusion movement happened. 
because rock musicians listen to this music, etc., etc. So yes, I think uh, it absolutely belongs on any list of the greatest. Uh, I think Rolling Stones list is. I could be wrong. Is it limited to like American, like North American music, American and Canadian, basically? Like I don't think. No, it's... because there's a bunch of Beatles. It's it's certainly Eurocentric. Oh, okay. uh, Western. It's yeah. we, it's it's yeah. all Western. Like there's it's not like a no. album or whatever. So uh, of of music kind of made in this era for popular consumption, I think this is one of the most important albums of all time. And then just looked at in terms of uh, and uh, forgive me for the chauvinism of this, but in terms of American music, uh, even though I you know I think we could say that this is actually part of a of a more of a, a larger zeitgeist than that. But in terms of American music, I think this is. This is absolutely one of the most important recordings produced on, uh, you know, on hmm. American soil uh, in terms of defining our contribution to the cultural life of the planet Earth. I just I really think this is a seminal record. It's not the only record from the jazz world. I think that yeah. would fit in that list, but it's it's way up there. What about you, Mike? Um, Jason, I think you've helped me feel more comfortable with it being at 12 and one of the reasons i wasn't as comfortable with it being 12 i thought maybe it should be a little lower and the only reason i say that is because i just feel it's less familiar to the general populace and not that that necessarily makes an album great but certainly that's part of it and that's part of what kind of makes this list and i've talked about you know what are the rules of making this list not necessarily where we would put it but how did they make it was it a good decision and I think you've helped shed some light on how it has influenced uh, rock because most of this list is rock. It kind of, that's where it's got its core in rock and roll. Even though they say greatest albums of all the time, we know they mean with the rock and roll world and its periphery. So, um, and primarily would, 60s and 70s. Yeah, for sure. And everything that flowed from that. I would like to put it higher because I enjoy it so much. And I see it significant, but I just struggle with the influence. But I think I see that a little better now. And I think that if instead of rock and roll in an alternate universe, if jazz had become the forefront of pop music and popular music and what everybody listens to, this would be number one. And actually, because uh, jazz music was that for so long, you know, if looked at right. through the lens of 2019 or through whenever, whatever year the list was compiled that we're talking about, which was still in the 21st century, uh, you know, we're a long way from a time when this album would have been known by, you know, the average person. And, you know, when people heard this kind of music right. regularly, uh, and I get that that seems like, the you know, the myths of ancient time. I mean, uh, you know, the. however there was a, a pretty long period of time, like the first several decades of recorded music where this kind of music and the music that preceded it was the popular music of the day. And if right. we, if we say that, uh, you know, something's importance is partly tied to its influence on what is popular. There was a time when the, this influence on what was popular was great. It's just certainly, certainly yes. it's faded now. Now it's, you know, now it's the ripple effect, that kind of thing. I totally get that. And I think I could walk out, uh, you know, I live in a college town. I think I could walk down the street and I, I, in fact, I might try this experiment and just ask people, do you know what kind of blue refers to and see if anybody knows it's a record? Then <laughs> if anybody knows, yeah, I think it's an album. Okay. Do you know who it's by? And I don't think most people 
would I, you know, I get that. And for that reason, you could probably make a case that it should be lower down the list. Um, you know, I think it's a juggling point between its its modern relevance and the influence that it had at one point. Yeah. And, yeah, you got to watch that your Uber rating doesn't get downgraded too much. If yeah, you I think I would do it while walking people. around as, as opposed to while driving for that very reason. I don't know. This creepy dude kept asking me about old musicians. <laughs> and the other thing that um, makes me you know, excited that it's so high and one thing that I wanted to mention earlier, um, this is kind of a landmark album on this 500 list. It is the first instrumental album probably one of the only ones it is the first album from the 50s if we don't count our previous album which was all recorded in the 50s the those are sun sessions by elvis it was released in 76 but all the music's from the 50s so i don't know how you do that but this is the first album from the 50s so this is a very different album not just because it's jazz, but in a lot of different ways. And I think that's impressive and does speak to its influence and importance in the minds of people who mostly study like rock and, and it, and rock subgenres that it made it up this high. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that it's this high. I just, I, same with you, Jason, the yeah. popularity thing is the only reason that I would kind of have assumed it might've been lower, but I'm pleased that it is. And if high. people want to hear an example of the kind of rock music this influenced, I highly recommend you subscribe because the next episode of this show is going to be about the velvet underground and Nico. And if you Ooh. think that, uh, John Cale and Lou Reed had not heard kind of blue, we should probably sit down and chat because there's absolutely no, there's no universe that exists <laughs> in which those two guys had not heard this, had not been influenced by the cool culture that miles created around him. Uh, it, you know, huh. I mean, just, just period. I'd be willing to stake everything on that. So, you know, that's, uh, that's definitely a case of a bleed through from this album to the next album. And I will also say just because I, I love this fact, the first place that the velvet underground played in the lower East side is now a Chipotle. So although you can't go see music there, you could get a burrito. Oh, that's kind of sad. That's <laughs> uh, funny. I think that I'm I'm resonating with what you both have said. Uh, I I struggle a little bit with this the way that this list was constructed because it's called the greatest albums, but especially here in the top twenty, what we find are albums that were influential and seminal. So you know the quick scan I. I don't know why Highway 61 was so high on the list, but I, I can hear so many other artists when I listen to that. Um, the same thing with, with Exile on Main Street and London Calling, uh, the Sun Sessions, Kind of Blue, and, and even Velvet Underground, which is coming up next. All of those, uh, I listen to them not because, uh, you know, I think that they are things that should stand on the on their own for the test of time but because of the way that they inspire the greatness that comes after them um you all have have stretched me beyond uh my understanding of kind of blue and i may be nudging that to a different place than those other ones that i that i named but i would also strongly object to that characterization of the albums that you just mentioned i know i'm well, not on any of those episodes nor will i be probably <laughs> ever invited back again and that's completely justifiable <laughs> but yeah. yeah but i uh, i would take a very different point of view on the records that you just all the records that you just <laughs> in terms of them as as things themselves and also them as uh, judging them both on their own merits and on their influence 
maybe we need to start a next podcast that's uh, Jason's reflections on how Ben and Mike did on the Sound Logic podcast. I should do a Star Wars Minute style podcast that is Sound Logic Minute. Yeah, where I just go episode by episode and give my completely pompous take on all the things that you guys say. Let's pause Ben and Mike right here, and I'll take 20 minutes to tell you what I think about what they just said. Here's what it's boiling down to for me. I think I need to get over to my... I need to get over my own um, bias against music that does not fit a box. Um, and I remember the words of, of Reverend Donna King when she was with us. She talked about the way that, that dissonance in music can spark revolution and can lead to change. I think I want kind of blue to, to fit a, a chord uh, structure that I'm used to. And so when it doesn't, when it's a bit more free flowing, I find myself, uh, get a little uneasy and I need to start realizing that that's actually valuable to me as a listener to be stretched in that way, to think about, you know, even to, to then have it transcend my life and to think about the ways that I, I am too comfortable in many different ways. Um, so in that way I could say, this album is, is just as, uh, influential and in fact, maybe even more so than, uh, uh, than what's going on, which I bumped up to, did I put it at my number one pick? You did. Did reshuffle the top 10? I can't remember now, but, um, but yeah, you know, it, it, it's, I'm starting to understand why it's this high and I'm now seeing, um, you know, why, why I should maybe give it more credit than it, than I have up to this point in the very short amount of time that I've actually listened to this album. And and I just want to point out that that, that methodology you just suggested is, uh, literally what you do in, in all of the other aspects of your life. You're someone who goes out of your way to make sure that you're not limiting yourself to what makes you comfortable. Uh, it's interesting, you know, so I mean, just, just live your musical life the exact same way you live the rest of your life. (laughs) And that's going to happen naturally. That's just how you are. I'm refusing to do that for Exile on Main Street. I'm not sure why I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm not willing to go there for that that album. But my favorite Stones for, album of all time, or for Highway 61. But uh, in looking ahead, uh, there are two more Miles Davis albums on this uh, 2012 version really? of the Rolling Stone Top 500 album list. Can I try to Can I try to guess what they are without you saying? Yeah, uh, I, I'm sure one of them is Bitches Brew. Right. Well, the other one is hard for me. I, if, well, I'm going to say my gut is that the other one is Sketches of Spain, but I don't know. You're, you're right, and they're in that order. Uh, Bitches Brew comes in at number 95, so we'll get there in another two years or something like that. I'm really surprised by that because on a list compiled by Rolling Stone, I could see every reason in the world why Bitches Brew would be number 12 and Kind of Blue would be number 95. Well, yeah, for some reason, Bitches Brew has permeated pop culture in a different kind of way. Like dogfish head has a bitches brew miles Davis beer that they brew. Um, it's got like a cool factor. I think that's different than, you know, and sketches of Spain is an album I've never even heard of. It's all the way down at three fifty eight. Yeah. Um, and that, that's, I think that's fair. I'm actually kind of surprised it's on the list, but bitch, I mean, bitches brew is a way closer analog to, to rock. I mean, bitches brew has rock stuff in it. Like it, it has like back four backbeat, you know, music that's just like right in there. So it, yeah. yeah, I, I think that's a, it's absolutely deserves a place in the list. And I think you could make an argument to, to switch these two. I don't think you, if you really dig deep, I don't think you can, but I think if you're just going to say, well, I'm a, we're a rock magazine, 
you know, let's make the list accordingly. I think you could make an argument, which is how it feels most of the time. So I, I think you're right. I think it is surprising to find kind of blue here at number 12 where it is, but uh, kudos for them for stepping outside of their rock and roll box, I guess. Yeah. Well, what do we got next time, Mike? Well, as mentioned, we've got album number 13, which is the velvet underground and Nico by of course, velvet underground, an album that we're struggling with. Although Jason's, uh, Jason's uh, light that he shed tonight maybe helps us with how we process that moving forward. It's so good. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. It's such a great record. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure that y- you could probably come back and join us for any of these 500 albums, but take a look down the list and, uh, and, and pick out another couple and we'll have you back. Uh, at the very least, we need to have you back at number 95 when we do the bitches brew, but, uh, but come back another time too. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's been a huge pleasure for me to, uh, you know, as is obvious, I, I am not good at concision, but the, the reason for that is that uh, I think this stuff is incredibly important. I music, music is the one constant in my entire life. There, there is no other person or thing or activity I've ever engaged in that has been as constant a source of support and joy mm. for me as music. It mm. is the thing, uh, you know, it's, it is why I'm still here to talk to you. I, it's just incredibly important to me. And uh, I think it's, it's so important in this era of forgettability and easy access to the memory hole that we take time like you guys are doing to just go through some of our cultural history and talk about why it matters uh, I think that's incredibly, incredibly important. So kudos to you guys. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a, a, I'm a listener and, uh, and really, really honored to have been here. Thank you guys very much. Oh, well, well, thanks for joining us, Jason. It was great to have your insight. And if people want to hear more from you, uh, where can they find you? Uh, the easiest way is I host a podcast called The Jazz Session. It's at thejazzsession.com. It's a member-supported interview show where I talk with jazz musicians, one, generally speaking, one per episode. Sometimes it's a band. Uh, Episodes come out twice a month. You can listen for free, absolutely, but there's also a a Patreon program where you get a bonus episode each month. Uh, And I uh, also am other places. uh, Generally speaking, if you go to The Jazz Session, you can get to all those other places. Um, But the only other thing I will mention is uh, I also write a lot, and if you want to read any of that, you can go to jasoncrane.org, uh, jasoncrane.org. Awesome. Well, I think that's it for this week. So we thank you all for listening and uh, look forward to talking to you next time. And guys, I hope you have a great evening and be well. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.